Welcome to What a Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron Esley. I'm Aaron Esley. And I'm Rupert Guinness. And we are live, coming to you from the Lord Dudley Hotel here in Sydney, Australia. Rupert, always a pleasure to see you. It's been a, been a long week without you. It's been a long week, but an exciting week. Uh, tell me, what's been going on? Well, we've seen the end of the yeah, Criterion of the Dauphiné. Yep. We've seen the end of the Tour de Suisse. We've basically got onto the cusp on the edge of the Tour de France. Oh, we are, we, are so, we are so close to the Tour de France. You can almost smell it. Exactly. In the rosé. Actually, I should also say that we talk about races, the Route de Sud as well, which Alberto Contador won. You know, so there's three big races there that have been uh, fought and won and lost. Absolutely. You know, but we're going to get into that in a little bit of try as well. Um, we're going to talk to you a bit about that, but first... We're going to talk a bit about we are what a ride and, and just exactly what we are to remind the listeners we are coming to you live from the Lord Dudley as we mentioned. We are on the Australian Broadcast Media Network. We're 36 FM stations, 200 digital and available on download to your smartphone via iTunes. Rupert, you've been around for quite a while. You've been covering rugby, rowing, sailing, cycling, triathlon for almost 30 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a great job being a sports journal, really, when you think about it. Just when you just say that, Aaron, you know, it just makes you realize, you know... It's, it's a uh, good gig. It's a good gig. It is yeah. a good gig, and uh, it's uh, the great thing about covering sport is it's about positive drive, you know, yeah. forward, you know, the athletes and teams trying to achieve the best and do what they can. Even under extenuating circumstances, it may, the, the big story may not always be the winning story. Mm. It can be, I hate to say the losing story, but it can be the team that doesn't win. Looking back at a 30-year career, are there special moments that have to be? Now, again, for over 30 years, are there special moments in your career that just really stand out? Oh, dude, that's a hard one. I mean... I have to say, even though I've, you know, <laughs> with all the cycling events I've covered, and they've been fantastic events for, uh, or memorable events for good and bad reasons, which is all those books you, you know, you mentioned about, but also some of the uh, poignant moments and uh, significant moments have been the, uh, you know, I still rate the 2007 Rugby World Cup uh, in France as a great uh, period of my life. Even though the Wallabies absolutely stank, you know, actually rugby stank. The game they pl- that was played in that whole tournament really wasn't a positive game of rugby. So what made that year so special? It was more the um, atmosphere, the ambiance, as they say in France, of, of, of the cup and just the chance to be able to experience um, another sport apart from cycling, which has been so close to, to my heart, like the Tour de France, obviously. So you, you, I, get to, I go to France the Tour de France, to experience the Tour de France in a cycling environment. But then to see and experience France uh, from a rugby point of view, and actually it's opened my eyes uh, very widely to how great rugby in France is. And hence, I've had interest in uh, the top 14, the French Championship competition. Since then, I've written a book on uh, George Smith, the former Wallaby um, player, uh, who could be a current rugby player for the World Cup this year in 2015 because of the new Australian Rugby Union laws. Um, and at that time, he was playing for Toulon in France. So I got to speak with him and experience French rugby in his environment, which I found an environment which I was attached to. But was a, from a rugby point of view, it was a new new point of view. And uh, I really just, you know, well, I've got a big rap for French, well, for French sport anyway. Uh, well, you lived in France. I lived in France. Um, How many years? Oh, I was nine years in total. Four, year, four of those years were in Belgium. And you were working for Belgian News at the time? 
Yes, working for Velo. I originally went over there for, for Winnie magazine, which was then published in uh, Brussels in Belgium, and I was the editor of the uh, English-speaking edition, and I was the European correspondent for the American edition, and uh, they had two editions. It was pretty, pretty amazing when you think of it those days. Two, two editions of one English-speaking magazine. This is going back in the 80s, and at that point in time, I think there was probably a couple of other magazines that existed, like... I think it was Cycling International. But whatever way here in Australia, uh, you'd get those magazines six months later at best. You know, it was, it was great. And uh, they had beautiful photos. And, uh, and I always dreamed. I was working at Newsdemit at the time. And I was, used to dream of what a job that would be. Now, for, 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 the, for the record, you're not working at News Limited now. No, I'm working for Fairfax. <laughs> and you're not working for Villa News now. I'm not working for... <laughs> okay, we've moved on, haven't we? Yeah. Just, just to declare we're in two thousand fifteen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Working for Fairfax, and about to go to the Tour de France. Absolutely. And yeah. of course, you work for Cycling News as a correspondent as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. That being said, I work for Bella News now, and I used to work for Cycling News. <laughs> so we've got flip flopped a bit there. You know, you you talk about how slow the communication was back in the day, um, and we're talking the eighties. Uh, one thing that was significant during that time period was one Australian, Phil Anderson, who, and this is a relevant story, not just to Australians, but to every non-European, as he became the first non-European to ever don the Meadow Yeah, You were there. Yeah, I mean, Aaron, it was, um, what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's fantastic we've seen Cadell Evans win the 2011 Tour de France. We saw his his journey towards that, the highs and the lows. We've seen, um, you know, we've all celebrated the stage wins by Australian riders and different teams in the Tour de France and in other races as well. Um, and also Oracle Green Edge, Australia's first World Tour team, or Australia's first team in the Tour de France, and which has which been fantastic stories, and they still are fantastic stories that are evolving. But... As the more those stories evolve, I still think that the uh, the imprint that someone like Phil Anderson left on the sport in contemporary Australian cycling, notwithstanding there was a lot of great riders who rode in Europe before Phil, but Phil Anderson was very much in the contemporary uh, formula. He was the he, he was he was the pioneer, and what he did back in the early eighties, and not just winning, uh, not just claiming the the yellow jersey for the first time by an Australian 1981 is, 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 is he, he's the way he raced in the classics, he attacked. He attacked in the classics, he attacked in the tours, he, he did this and that. Um, and I still remember when um, when Richie Port finished uh, seventh in the 2010 Giro, I was rang him for a, uh, an opinion. And his recollection, not being disrespectful to Richie Port's achievement, but when he raced the Giro, he just used to race it for... Uh, he didn't even think of the general classification, yeah. but Phil actually finished eighth one year without actually thinking of it, which may uh, which may have reflected a change of the significance of how people race. You know, we, we, we look in the, in the past year, um, if you go back the, the previous season, to a, a Colombian, Nairo Quintana, and, and, and what he was able to accomplish at the Giro d'Italia, and how much fanfare that came from being the first Colombian to, to, to do so. What would Bill Anderson, the, the accomplishment that he created, that he achieved back almost 30 years ago, if not more, uh, what, what would the, the, the social media buzz be about Bill Anderson? Wow. You could think of that. Well, the closest it would be, yeah, funny you mention that, because at the same sort of era, you had the first Colombian team that arrived in the Tour de France, Café de Colombia. It had riders like 
Luis Herrera, Lucho Herrera. And the big imprint that uh, the Colombians had on that, not obviously their performance, but they came with these uh, Colombian uh, radio reporters who just were sitting on the finish line with mics on their hand and they were calling pedal stroke for pedal stroke live to Colombia. And a, another event of the Tour de France was being in the media, standing in the media section and watching these Colombian radio reporters actually just give their live commentary. No one could understand it. Oh, now, I don't mean that flippantly, because obviously I don't understand Spanish, you know, but, um, you know, it was, it was absolutely exciting to, 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 to hear them commentate, let alone watch the race unfold. So I think that was probably the, uh, the closest to live, immediate, uh, global. global thing, because that, that was, that was the, the gateway to another frontier of uh, reportage of, of the Tour de France. Live, global reportage was going to Colombia. And that was seen as a new frontier. And um, so from an English-speaking point of view, at that point, it wasn't live coverage. So it was still um, not until... Well, the news came over by boat. Came over by boat. <laughs> came over mag- yeah, yeah, literally, because magazines came over. And then, yeah, obviously, fortunately, SBS uh, got on board and started doing their uh, 30-minute highlight packages, you know, and uh, which was obviously massively important for, for Australia. And then... I th- think also for the uh, you know, broader stream of coverage you know, in English-speaking world. But I think the two organisers, ASO, obviously realise that the Tour de France is, is a brand they've got to globalise. But um, I still think the, uh, the Colombians have, a, have, a, have a, a huge you know, tick to them for not just, you know, I mean, they did start the, the, the excitement of globalised Tour de France coverage, even though the Americans did come in with their big crews and that, you know, the big film crews, and they did that with you know with Greg, the rise of Greg LeMond. But, but of course, and, and even the, the rise of Greg LeMond, though, came a few years after Phil Anderson. As a matter of fact, Greg LeMond yeah. tributes his success to, to Phil Anderson opening that door. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is Phil and Greg were very much, you know, they were peas in the pod when their career started. Okay, uh, Greg might have shown, actually I wouldn't say shown more promise, but I guess he showed more promises as a probable Tour de France contender than Phil did, even though Phil was finishing fit, he got two fits. But Greg was, yeah, you know, straight away up there in fourth and you know third and stuff. And so uh, he was, you know, straight away seen as that. But one of the interesting anecdotes I remember is talking to Phil early in his career was how uh, when he was riding for Peugeot, the French team Peugeot, and all the contracts were in French. And basically, in that day and age, um, yeah, Phil didn't understand a lot of French at that time. And you can imagine when there's not a lot of English-speaking riders, Greg was there. Not a lot, still, not, still two non-English, not two English-speaking riders amongst in the New World. And um, uh, he didn't really understand the contract. He got a he thought, to credit, Phil's credit, he actually got a, uh, a lawyer who happened to work in Formula One car racing to have a look at his contract, just to check if this is okay. At the time, Phil was married uh, with somebody, uh, his, well, with his wife Anne, from America, who, I mean, I think I'd assume the two of them thought it was best to get someone else to look at this contract. Sure. Amazingly, that, that manager said, this contract is worth a piece of shit. Oh. Beep, beep, beep. Can we, can we, we can, we can. 
but you know, really, you know, like uh, it really was. It was just worthless. And um, and uh, so he came back and replied and said, you know, well, you know the lawyer, the Formula One manager said, do changes, changes, changes. Suddenly became a uh, you know a major headline in the French paper, like Aussie cyclist seeks Formula One manager to seek mega multi franc. Yeah, so was the media painting him as a bad guy? I wouldn't say the bad guy, but it certainly is the shock guy, as a shock cock. Uh, yes. As a shock jock. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we can have a beat there. Yeah, we can. We can have a beat there. <laughs> this is live radio, people. <laughs> certainly that way, because, because I mean, it really was confrontational. Yeah. It, was, it was a confrontation of, 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 of cultures. And all Phil was just wanting if it was a fair cut, you know, and get back to the Greg LeMond angle. Greg obviously uh, saw that too, and you know Greg was very much a driver in in, in uh, you know, trying to create bigger wages or better wages in better circumstances, not just for English speaking riders, but for riders generally. You know, that it, this is one of the one of the great things about American influence in cycling was just a push for you know better rights, better uh, wages, better contracts. You know, uh, that's that was Greg's thinking. I mean, Phil came in. Really, just you know, by himself, just trying to cut a better deal. Yeah. But they were two good mates. That's an amazing story. You know, the, the fact is, is that he did really pave that way for Greg. And, and as being an American journalist, really putting the you know, that door that he opened for Greg LeMond really opened the door for cycling in the U.S. completely. Um, I remember talking to Philippe Bouvet from Le Keep and him saying that probably that was that, that Greg's winning the Tour de France was one of the biggest moments in cycling globally because it did open that door to North America. And again, that makes a lot of sense when you when you see Greg attribute his win and his opportunity to Phil Anderson, which I think we would both agree probably still doesn't get as much respect and due as he should deserve. Yeah, I mean I mean you, you know Philippe, you know, I know you you got you got some some good precious time with Philippe when he was out here in Australia, which would have been uh uh, time, uh, I wish I was at that dinner table when you guys were together, but... Had a whole uh, week with him. Yeah, yeah, oh. I mean, uh, I've, I've known Philippe Bouvet for a number of years, and um, one thing I actually I wouldn't I have, I forgot to tell you, Aaron, I saw him at the, he was at the Giro, he was at the Giro. This last year, right? This last year, and you know what, he was, he was, he had that same vibrant love of cycling back. And I, and I was actually really heartened to see Philippe there enjoying... Cycling game. I'm not saying he wasn't enjoying it, but obviously, you know, the sport's gone through a tumultuous period for everybody for a number of years, number of reasons. And there's certain periods uh, that you know one person may be dipping out a bit if they're not faith or love, but just sort of dipping out and then coming back and re- finding it again. And, and I saw Philippe in the Giro and. He, uh, he, yeah, he, I could see that, that that little twinkle in his eye again, and and, and it's really important that there are long-standing journalists who have weathered the storm, for better or for worse. And I'm not just saying this for myself, but I just think it's important. There's still people there who, who can still come back and, and and have a face in the sport and deliver a message. And what that message is, uh, it's a message. No, everybody else can, people who are new to the sport can still learn from it. Absolutely. Of course, that goes back to yourself. Uh, one Andrew Hood that we had on last week, who replaced you at Bellow News at the time what when you were left. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we had replacement. Yeah, I wasn't well, there. You go. No, no, exactly. And obviously, we had Andrew Hood, Euro Hoodie. 
uh, at Euro Hoodie on last week. And then I can't mention 1986 and uh, Greg Lebon and the Tour de France without mentioning another team that obviously Greg wasn't a part of, but uh, Team 7-Eleven, which is near and dear to my heart. You had, you had a great uh, Davis Finney, Taylor Finney's dad, Chris Carmichael, and of course, I think one of the best athletes of all time, Eric Hyden, who had made the transition from cycling to pro cycling from, from speed skating, where he had won five Olympic gold medals at Lake Placid in 1980. Unbelievable athlete to make that transition. And from what I understand, the only athlete that is in both the U.S. Pro Ice Skating Hall of Fame and Cycling Hall of Fame. Something. That is something. I mean, Eric Harden. I mean, what reminds me about Eric Harden, like, you knew him as as an American, and he was obviously a phenomenal star. I remember when um, when he was riding with 7 Eleven. And he, was, and he was riding just to, to finish the Tour de France, for example. What amazed me was how a guy who had been such a, you know, you know, he had all these gold medals hanging around him, metaphorically speaking, yeah. and then he so embraced the role of just trying to do the best he could every day. And he was a big bloke, and he was riding the Tour de France. His, his legs were literally the size yeah. of tree trunks, and they, yeah, were, they yeah. were massive. They were quite comparable to some of the, the better sprinters in the pro peloton now. Um, he was a massive individual, an amazing guy, who now is a chiropractor, successful chiropractor, in Salt Lake City, I believe Salt Lake, but in Utah, and he is he's one of the ambassadors for the successful tour of Utah that's, that's gone quite well in the last couple of years. Oh, well, there we go. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I mean, it's great that he's, um, I'm not surprised he's still involved in this point. I mean, that, that, that's his nature, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he, uh, I remember as a journalist, I was just pausing a little bit because I just remember as a journalist thinking, trying to think, you know, you were trying to get him to come out with some gold because he had had so much gold, as I said, right? Yeah, yeah. He would, he would never give gold. But I realized pretty quickly, he's probably the sort of athlete you just need to observe and watch and appreciate the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then... In his own way, he would give you the recognition by you just sort of recognizing that, you know, recognize respecting his position as not being a star in the cycling team. He, I think, he respected that better than right you trying to come up to them and say, you know, hey mate, you know, you're because you're Olympic. Of, of course, and we'll leave it at this before we go to commercial break. But uh, you know, when he won those five gold medals in 1980, I was eight years old. And they say never meet your heroes, your childhood heroes. And I can tell you, he lived up to it in every way. He is an Olympic hero. Well, I reckon we can get him on the show sometime. Yeah, we should. I, I reckon. We, yeah, well, cool. Yeah, well, we'll try to get you on the show. Eric. If, if we don't, we'll Mr. Come, Mr. We'll, Mr. come up with different impersonations. Absolutely. I am Eric. Eric Hyden, Harold. Absolutely. That is so nice and impersonal. Well, what would you rather do? Would you rather go go on a bike ride with him or a lap around the ring? Um, good call. Good call. You know what? I'd well, like to see you on the skating ring, the, the ice, ice ring. I have been on the skating ring. I have done it twice. I never, you know, I did uh, pirouettes and... <laughs> As you would, as you would. Sorry, I'm, I'm almost dreaming. Yeah, and we'll have actually photos of these on uh, Rupert Guinness's Twitter account at Rupert Guinness, which he is currently not using. <laughs> 
we'll have to we'll have to catch back up more with Rupert's uh, skating uh, prowess, and obviously more with what a ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron Esley. We're coming back. We'll talk more cycling. We got triathlon on deck. Even a potential breaking story that may happen. By the time you listen to this, the story would have already broken, unfortunately. But we're on top of it first. We'll come back with more what a ride after this. With what a ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron Esley. I am Aaron Esley. I'm Rupert Guinness. Doing my best. Absolutely, as always. And we are coming to you from the Australian Broadcast Media Network, 36 FM stations via Radio Sydney. Uh, we are 200 digital stations. And, of course, we are available download to your smartphone via iTunes. Um, Rupert, great conversation earlier. We probably went a bit long in that first segment, but... You know, we started talking Phil Anderson, got to be a little bit of Greg LeVon, and, and, and who'd have thunk it? A little Eric Hyden. Well, you start pulling the heartstrings, you start, the heartstrings of history and tradition, and then there you go. You know, you, you may start talking about the beginning of the earth. Oh, absolutely. The you, world. Know, you, you know what? And, of course, we, we, we talk a little bit about cycling and triathlon, and we, 
We're going to touch base in snowing and skiing and surfing and surf life saving at some point. We've touched base on rugby. Well, we talked about the Rugby World Cup uh, earlier. Um, what's going on? You, you've been covering the rugby all week as well. Anything breaking? Anything we should know about? Well, some interesting things because uh, as we're talking now, you know, the uh, rugby season in the, in the Southern Hemisphere is just coming up to the semi-finals. Where we've got four teams, two New Zealand teams, two Australian teams. The Highlanders um, are playing the from New Zealand are playing the Waratahs, defending champions in Sydney on Saturday night, and then also the the Hurricanes. From New Zealand. And the Hurricanes are going to play the Brumbies, who had a superb win against the uh, Stormers in South Africa last weekend. So you've got two New Zealand sides, two Australian sides in the Super Rugby Championship. Now talk to me, the, the Hurricanes, and remind me, they're from Wellington? No, yeah, Hur- no, no, Hurricanes from Wellington. Yeah, exactly, and, and it's funny you mentioned that. And, and the Highlanders are from uh, Dunedin. Well, the, the, well, the reason I say about the Hurricanes in Wellington, I just wrapped up a feature story for New Zealand Bike Magazine today with one young Scott Ambrose, a 20-year-old cyclist who rides for Team Novo Nordisk. Now, the, the, what's special about this team is the entire team is comprised of riders that have type 1 diabetes. Now... Scott Ambrose is a former cyclist turned uh, or triathlete turned road cyclist, and he is a self-admitted, even though he's from Auckland, an avid Hurricanes fan. So that, that kind of reminded me of that. Well, good luck to him. <laughs> well, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, we talked about breaking I stories. Because actually, I, 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 I didn't laugh. I did laugh. I you did. did laugh. You did. But no, seriously, the hur- say before you go on to what you're about to say, the Hurricanes have been a superb team, and if, if they do win. The Super Rugby Championship, they deserve it. Yeah, you know, like really. I mean, well, actually, great. you haven't been that. You've been quite supportive of the Hurricanes on, on, on lately, but but you've been seemingly a bit hard on the Waratahs lately. Really? I haven't I haven't seen you banter for them or or pick them in the in the weekly pool. No, no, it's, it's not about not picking for. Uh, it's funny you mentioned <laughs> that. There's a former Wallaby who actually had a go me today about it, and it's not about freaking. Oh, that's not a swear word. No, you can say friggin'. Because it was not about friggin' being an anti Waratower Yeah. Support. It's just not about being, not being a fan. I mean, I'm yeah. a, And you're I'm not a, a fan. Journalist. You're a journalist. Really a fan. Yeah. But there are times where I do um, legitimately think that the Waratahs are not going to win. Yeah. And uh, this particular former Wallaby, he did catch a captain of Wallabies. <laughs> I won't get it shorter than that. But he had a he, no. He, he had a respectful dig at no, not a dig. It was a personal conversation. Yeah. He had a go at me about why I was why am I dissing the Waratahs? Yeah. He said, "I said I'm not dissing the Waratahs. I'm just not a fan. I'm, I, no, my job as a journalist is not to be a fan, and but I also have certain uh, uh, feelings that, that that how they operate um, as an organisation." in the access in uh, allowing personalities of their players to be portrayed in the public media is, is very restricted. And I'm really I'm a big believer that sport, you really need to sh- allow your personalities to come through a team. Okay, there's no iron team. That old cliche. Yep. But certainly, you need personalities. In this day and age, you need personalities to sh- to shine through and also in, 
any team, if a player's put forward, they've got to be able to be confident to say who they... I mean, they're adults. I mean, yeah. for God's sake, these guys are... Most of them are 20 years plus. They're adults. Yeah. They're not kids. They are human beings who are adults who have opinions who should be able to say what they think. And in that same sense of maturity, they should be able to sense what they say maybe you know yeah they, they, they're going to talk within certain confines yeah. of uh, respectability to respect their organization as i have to do with as a journalist at fairfax media i mean yeah. I, I can't be libelous what i write you know you had a chance while you were in at the giro in europe uh, last month to talk to a lot of a lot of people I and mean, obviously you had a chance to talk to gregor brown um, from cycling weekly the american and, and Velo news we had a chance to talk to, uh, obviously, Andrew Hood. And then, obviously, uh, Alberto Contador's personal attache. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you see how I got out of that. <laughs> no. You, you were worried. That's that was... a sick way to meet him. But um, there's another guy I spoke to in Ajuro who actually first met when he was riding for Lotto. He was riding as a domestic for Cadell Evans. His name is Charlie Regelius. Uh, are we talking Cannondale Gorman? Yes, he is now the uh, sports director there. But you know what? The interesting thing, when I first met Charlie, it was one of those rest day things where you wait, and I was just waiting around to wait for a few feet to Cadell. It was one of those free-for-alls where you all stand around, and there's journalists standing around, and everyone goes to the main guys. It's a bit like one of those uh, you know, uh, music stops, and then you go find a chair. I found Charlie, not a chair. He went, hello. Hello. Is that when you said this lap? Yes, yeah, hello. <laughs> My name's Rupert. I'm Charlie. He said. We started talking, and then uh, we had a great conversation. That, this is going back obviously some years when he was riding for Lotto. And then we had a great chat about uh, anything but cycling. It was really amazing. And then he spoke about his uh, love of horses. He trains horses, and uh, he, you know, if any people don't know who Charlie Vigelius is, he is from Finland, but he also has a British. Uh, I could be corrected. There's a British heritage there, anyway. So he's half Finnish, half British, and um, he's written a book on his life as a domestic in cycling, and it's a very interesting book. I can't remember the title, I got but it's a very interesting book because it's a very honest book. And during this year's Giro, uh, I had a chat to him because in the in the years that have passed since I first met him, we've always had some fun chats about honesties and mistakes that are made from Dritz Portes to journalists and uh, when we had a chat to him at the Giro we spoke about uh, we spoke about his love you know cycling obviously his admiration for Ryder Hesjedal oh Ryder I have I have quite the an Ryder. I have a quite an affinity for Ryder Hesjedal <laughs> yes as you do know Aaron because you did a daily diary. He wrote his daily diary doing the Tour Down Under. I, d- I did. And, of course, this was his, his return back to the Tour Down yeah. Under this year. He had not returned to the Tour Down Under since uh, 2012, the same year he won the Giro d'Italia. Exactly. And, of course, this year he gave it one red-hot go. Yeah. Well, he, he really did. He came back strong, didn't he? He did. I mean, rider rode as it rider does. Yeah. He, he proved he's a, three, he's a three-week rider. <laughs> Pardon the pun. He would love four weeks. He'd love four weeks. He would love four weeks. He'd prefer four weeks. <laughs> Give me another week. Give me another week. Give me three more mountain stages. I can, I can do this. But unfortunately, the UCI calendar only has so many 
weeks to accommodate a grand tour. Absolutely. But um, uh, but he's no, so he's so laid back as a Canadian. He doesn't get going until four weeks. Well, that's what Alan Piper said when he won the Giro in two twelve. He's so laid back, he sit down on his back. <laughs> Alan Piper being an Australian, but I mean, absolutely. Alan Piper was floored by riders <laughs> laid back. But anyway, um. Uh, Charlie Wigalias gave some pretty interesting insights about uh, Ryder Hedgedale as the fighter. Some interesting anecdotes about through his passion of um, training horses, him and his wife, they show jump horses. And I asked him, did he see any similarities between the horses he has and the riders that he has? He said, there are similarities. And he also said, as we'll hear in this interview, there's a few donkeys as well. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I cannot wait to go to this interview. Let's go now. I'm with Charlie Wigelius from the Cannondale Garmin team. I'm speaking to Charlie at the Giro d'Italia. We're in the last couple of days before we finish in Milan. Um, it's been a pretty exciting Giro with a lot of uh, uh, unexpected things that have been happening. But I guess, Charlie, that's what the Giro is about. Yeah, I think, um, I think the Giro as a race kind of reflects the Italian culture and the Italian way of living it's exciting and quite unpredictable at times. You're a rider who had a lot of experience and obviously you know what the difference is between the Tour and the Giro, how would you describe them, uh, the different characters but also the different challenges of both races? Well I think that um, if you look at the geography of France you know the mountain ranges in France are really very well defined, you've got the Pyrenees and the Alps and there's usually about 10 days of fairly generic flat riding before that and it's pretty hard to change that really you know that's always going to be the format of the of the tour but with the mountain ranges in in italy they can find climbs and hills and challenges behind practically every corner so there's always something you know very close by and uh it makes for an exciting race i think Obviously, the way, the way this race has uh, panned out, um, Alberto Contador showed his hand as, as again, as, as arguably the, the most dominant uh, Grand Tour rider of his generation. Do you, do you agree, or do you think uh, that's been misinterpreted? No, I think his performance over the years has been pretty impressive, to be honest, and I think at this stage of the race it's pretty well established that he's the strongest rider here, I think. Well, speaking of riders, you've got one rider, Hesedal, mm. the 2012 winner, yep. who seems to be sort of racing the same manner that he won the Giro with. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about Ryder, the rider we don't know about? He's got his own way of interpreting cycling, you know, and he, and he considers it, I guess, as kind of a distribution of resources, and he really tries to dose out his energy in the less crucial stages, you know, with real precision, and that means... He'll often be hanging around at the back of the peloton at times when you wouldn't see other big favourites of the race doing that. But you can see that that comes to fruition in the last week of the race when a lot of people start to run out of energy. He just keeps going. He's a real diesel engine and he's incredibly regular. And, you know, and even when he gets tired, he never really kind of cracks like a lot of riders do, just kind of stop at the side of the road. And he just, even when he's tired, he just keeps plodding on. And in a race like that, that can uh, be really beneficial. You know, I guess we've seen that already, how he's sort of chipped away and chipped away, and he has come back into the race. And uh, I guess no one would ever underestimate what he could do if he was given uh, too much time to get away. Yeah, I think 
the way he's raced in the last couple of years that's also worked against him because when he goes on breakaways that are genuinely just going after stage wins that wouldn't really need to concern the big favourites of the race they, they're very cautious about giving him too much space because they know that when he gets his nose in the wind and he gets a gap it's not necessarily so easy to catch him so that can work against him at times and I think we saw that yesterday when when the peloton only gave him a minute and a half on a stage when normally I think they could have given him six to eight minutes without you know, being concerned about the overall race yeah, Charlie, in your days as a, as a, as a rider, you were, you were a domestic, a, a helper for, for the leaders. Um, obviously, that's a, a huge role. Uh, for, general, for a general audience that is new to cycling, they see the glamour of the race. They see the guy on the podium, the guy with arms up. They see, the, 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 in particular, the Tour de France, all the circus of the event, and it's summer and it's nice and everyone's happy drinking wine on the roadsides. But for a domestic, and you've written your book about this as well, what's, the real, what's it really like as, as a domestic? It's, it's kind of the coalface of, uh, of pro cycling, you know, it's where the, the real hard work's done and essentially you get given a task uh, that in comparison to your team leader who falls into the arms of either his masseur or a podium girl, depending on how it's gone, when his finish line is, is crossed. Your finish line for the day as a, as a help rider can be 50, 60, 90 kilo, kilometres from the, from the finish line. And then you've got to model your way to the, to the finish somehow and get within the time limit. And that can be pretty grim at times. So they've got a tough job. Is there one, one day in the saddle that you were really on the brink and uh, perhaps to say one day when you were on the brink and you, and you just got through and maybe one day when you are on the brink and you just didn't have it that day? Uh, I think uh, as far as the Giro is concerned when we did the Paso Jao in 2008 uh, we rode a really really hard tempo with the team there to, to try and split the race and I was completely empty at the top of that climb and the race continued and I had to get to the finish and it started raining and I think it was Trecimi di Lavoredo the finish and it was the, that climb, it's like something out of the Lord of the Rings, you know, you could expect dragons to come out of some of the, the, the hilltops. And I really, uh, I wasn't really sure about how I was going to get to the finish that day, and it was a bit desperate. And that was, uh, so I went from being at the centre of attention at the front of the race, you know, making something happen that hadn't happened in that race until that moment, to being just a bit desperate about trying to get home, so... If I would have had 10 pence in my pocket to call my mother that day, I would have done it and asked her to come and pick me up. <laughs> well, I, I guess from your position as, as, as in the team car as a sports director, you, you see riders who are on the brink. What, what, what do you do to, to help them, um, uh, to encourage them, you know, when you think they are on the precipice of abandoning? Yeah, I think um, in that position you have to try and hit the balance between sympathy and empathy because in that moment you know feeling sorry for, sorry for them isn't going to help them and you need to use your perspective of where you're sitting to see the things that perhaps they don't see through the fatigue and the tiredness because at that moment for them you know finding the easy way out can seem the smartest thing to do because the brain doesn't necessarily work so well when you're under that kind of stress and in that moment you know, I think the job is to try and get them to to realise the smart way and think for them in a way, you know, in a way that hopefully they'll thank you for afterwards. 
Yeah, Charlie, when I first met you, I uh, don't know if you remember, it was when you were riding for Lotto and it was uh, a rest day and I was waiting for a press conference with Cadell Evans. <laughs> waiting, yeah. <laughs> waiting, I guess waiting, a lot of people. Waiting, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and we started talking about anything but cycling. We were talking about your, your passion and love of, of horses. Yeah. Can you tell us, our audience, a little, little bit about that and where that's standing at the moment? Yeah, the horses is a part of uh, my family history through my father, you know, and I find it uh, also with my wife. And I find it a great release from this world. And uh, a relationship with a horse, I think, like any kind of animal, is extremely honest and extremely straightforward. And you kind of... An animal or a horse doesn't have an ulterior motive or any kind of you know ambition for anything. And it's so much more simple. And you get what you give. And I find that really refreshing, you know, after when you work in quite a high-pressure environment at times, to go and spend time with those animals I find it quite calming uh, your, your horses they, they're show jumpers aren't they or same if I'm correct if I'm wrong that's right yeah they're show jumpers yeah and uh, what, what sort of standard of show jumping or is it not the standard you look for it's just to sort of as you said to be with and share that experience with the horses my wife jumps she's, she's taking a pause now because she's had kids but she was jumping 140 centimetres which is a kind of good hobby level I guess but it's uh, it's not something we have a huge ambition with. It's just uh, it's more about the process, I think. Where, where are the horses? Where's your stable or your or the farm or the land where they're at? They're up at home in Finland. Uh, my wife's family they have a dairy farm, so we kind of piggyback on the back of that. <laughs> are there any good horses in the peloton? You've got to tell me that. Yeah, there's some. Uh, some good young ones and there's some good stayers and uh, there's also a few donkeys I have to admit but uh, that gets sorted at the end of every year when they have your contract negotiations. Okay Charlie McGillis thank you very much for your time for joining us on Water Ride and uh, we'll chat during the Tour de France obviously we'll touch in to see how you're doing and how Garmin Cannondale are doing. Thanks very much. It'll be a pleasure thank you. Rue fantastic interview with Charlie. You know what, even talking to show jumping, I mean, it dates me back to having some interviews with Edwina Tops Alexander, who is an Australian legend in the sport of show jumping. It just goes to show you that cycling, show jumping, triathlon, it all blends, doesn't it? Oh, it actually, it actually tore my heartstrings when I uh, went to pony camp. I said to Charlie, I told him. I said, I went to pony camp once. You know what? I actually won a ribbon. He said, what for? Participation. He said something between <laughs> what and for, it yeah. was like an F word. Yeah. And I said, well, for being, having a go, it was like, yeah. a, it was like they had one ribbon left over. So, so basically, it. it's what I said is participation. Yes, patience. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was on a pony who didn't even move. Yeah, that, it, so. And it's an amazing sport, but to hear him talk about, not just that, but obviously... Ryder Hagendahl, and and you know this, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, what's what's interesting is to see that um, okay, Charlie's Charlie's a uh, obviously you know, major player with how he wants his team to run to try and win races. But at the same time, I admire his faith in someone like Ryder Hagendahl. Just the you gotta let Ryder race as Ryder races. Yeah, you know what. And it may not win you Grand Tour. It may not, you know, it, it may not win you a stage. But one thing I did see in the Giro, it got your team up the front at the end, and Ryder still 
um, you know, he, he was the protagonist. He was a protagonist yeah. in the race. And in full disclosure, Ryder has had some negative press over the years. We, we, we acknowledge yeah, that here yeah, at Water Ride. Yeah. He has had some issues. He's confessed. No, he's confessed to his, uh, to his uh, doping past. Yeah, back yeah. in his mountain biking days. And yeah. I think a lot of people forget that, that, that Ryder is a three-time Olympian already. And he went to the Olympics as a mountain bike rider yeah. originally. And he, there, there could be aspirations for Rio as well. Because uh, uh, maybe it is. Maybe we could say this. Maybe Canada doesn't have a lot of... A major pro cyclist, they're churning out. He could still be a, a, a next big thing. But with Ryder, he even took this year, he was one of the riders that was actually, you know, their bike was taken in and looked for a motor. Oh, that's right, yeah, for the mo- motor. Yeah. Actually, that's the other and with, thing. With, in their say, with Alberto Contador. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that's the other issue, you know, um, um, bike diving, which, which will be... I mean, it was an issue that, that, that became apparent in, not apparent, it became an issue that came up in the Jura Italia, and I've no question or doubt it'll be an issue that will appear in the Tour de France, because these issues tend to appear in the big name events. But actually, I'm not, I know some people will say that how the UCI are reacting to the potential issue of bike doping is a wrong thing. I don't, that's... I don't disagree with that because I actually think if there's an opportunity to try and be on top of something before sure. it happens, yeah. why not get on top of it? Hey. And, okay, doping, like it's human doping, blood doping yeah. or whatever, uh, you, know, you know, all those issues still have to be addressed. And getting on top of potential bike doping, if it exists, I don't think should be seen as a, uh, as a as a blanket to the other issues. But I just think if there's an opportunity to try and be proactive rather Absolutely. than reactive, yeah. go for it. And I'm not against the UCI for trying to be proactive in that front. Obviously, still saying we still have to address the issue of uh, of doping reactively. And Absolutely. In, in all fairness, to Ryder. Uh, they did test his bike along with Alberto Contador. And, and again, I forget the stage. I'm sure our, our listeners will remind us on Twitter or Facebook. But, but the fact is, is, the very next day, he actually pulled. And he was, they were, they were, the bikes were cleared. They were fine. Yeah, exactly. And the very next exactly. day, he actually pulled off one of his better results. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, and, and, and that's Ryder Asian Dog. <laughs> that's Ryder Asian Dog. Ryder Ice. Yeah, right or right, for sure. That's what he does. Yeah. I tell you what, one of the best weeks ever in my career spent with you guys, Tour Down Under this year. As a, you know what? I just think you referred to that about the Tour Down Under when he came down. I mean, okay, I know another Tour Down Under's other riders would come down and, and have a coffee or something. But what was interesting, Ryder was actually the first guy to actually, uh, say, cyclist to come down and, okay, he was right in the di- he was doing the diary with you. Hmm. But he actually came down and made it like something he was like a labor yeah yeah, yeah. he actually enjoyed it yeah and then i've got to say what what i found was interesting like you know you were doing the, your diary place and then i was i was there you were right in front of me <laughs> i'm in front of you but i was actually right on the deadline i know and is it so i'd apologize for that no no that, that was interesting because it actually gave it's it actually a chance for I thought this is a chance to maybe see that, okay, well, I might have had a, a wine glass. Well, because you, right. and fair but, enough. But I was on deadline, and I yeah. was not able to um, partake in the conversational yeah. aspect of it. And For I the record, like, the bar is open at five. Yeah. 
I was just, I, I just thought, you know what, this is a chance for, at least for a bike rider to see that I had to write a story. And I was under, actually under the pump. I was yeah. never doing gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we had a good time. I think it was a, it was a, it was a pleasure. The wine glass next to me gave it away. What was amazing though is by the end of the week, we, we could be shooting ourselves in the foot because they may all hear this and, and not give us this respect next year. But at one point, I think we had uh, Walter Whippet from uh, Drag Pack, yeah. Steel Von yeah. Hoff, who was uh, the, the, the reigning two-time Criterium champion. He had just made the transition from Garmin Sharp to NFTO. We had both Ryder and uh, obviously Nathan there from Carm- uh, from Cannondale Garvin, and we even had Richie Richie Port coming down. <laughs> yeah, and he went home. He went back to his bed because he was he did. ready for a big season. He did. One thing, the last thing, actually, actually, what you make is a very good point because one of my big rights about football rugby union with like cover accessibility the Morning Herald is you know I, uh, as we spoke about before about uh, the lack of access to to players and athletes and how it's so important for the media to have some sense of the personality of the uh, athlete, whether they're a cyclist, a footballer or whatever. Um, we can say friggin', we're a friggin' big believer that unless the journalists can have an opportunity to understand a person, not the athletes who's put, who's put before the television grab, you know, for a a quick one-minute quote, two-minute quote, or the supposed exclusive, extensive five-minute interview. If you're a respected journalist, okay, some people may say they're not respected journalists. I just think, any, if I'm not a respected journalist, I'd like to think that any respected journalist may get a crack at being able to have at least an hour as an extensive interview. I'll tell you off air whether time. whether you're respected or not. I'll tell you off air. <laughs> Thank you for that. I was going to tell you on the air. <laughs> now, just please hold that response. <laughs> I agree with you completely, and, and, and yeah. you're, you're you're absolutely right. And and the, as that accessibility, obviously, pro cycling, even the sport of triathlon, the endurance sports, running, surfing, uh, surf life saving, snowboarding, skiing, as, yeah, as they grow in popularity, that accessibility is starting to diminish. I hope not for our own sake, so we don't have to work so hard to get interviews. But but more importantly. It is, they are some great sports. The reason why we connect with these guys so much and the reason we love it. You know, we've had one hell of a show again this year. It's the episode three. Um, we've got another one coming next week before you head off to the Tour de France. I go to China yes. for the Tour of yes. Qingai Lake. Exactly. So we're all happening on the road. Next week, we're going to save it. We're going to try to fit it in this week. We've got an interview with Dan Jones, the man behind uh, Backstage Pass. He is Mr. Backstage Pass. Yeah, he he's. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> Dan would actually laugh at what I... I won't go down that path. But anyway... I don't know Dan, so I won't go there. <laughs> Dan Jones has been... You know, he was he was the creator, the instigator, the uh, the guy who created Backstone, Backstage... Backstage... Backstone... Backstage Pass for the Oracle Greenish team. And when that team started, one of the most important things that I know that Jerry Ryan, the owner, wanted was that the team would have a multimedia focus, but not just in a computerized sense or whatever. He wanted he wanted that to be a personalized sense. He wanted the punter to feel a part of the team. He wanted the punter um, to ride the journey with the team. And really important for that was for Dan Jones to, you know, who's, who's, who's got a very strong background in you know production and film work and and uh, and a personality that he can just sort of embed himself into a team without actually imposing himself. 
and he's very conscious of that as well. So that's part of a lot of why he, what he has done has been very successful. So that was very much one of Jerry Man, uh, Jerry uh, Ryan's mandates in in this team starting. He, uh, Jerry didn't want a team to start and just be a team. He wanted to have a team that had the star, the riders, this uh, sponsors, yeah. uh, supporters, yeah. but the supporters who feel a community connection. A community connection, mm-hmm. exactly. Aaron. Yeah. Very, yeah, the community connection. Is the but, but, but does that go back to Jerry's? And we'll talk about this on next week's show. But does that come back to Jerry's? background with with rugby even though he owns the the, the melbourne storm he's he's got a background so. with theater and obviously walking with the dinosaurs yeah. and and war horse uh, we, we've seen him with uh the melbourne cup and horse racing with americane and yeah. he comes from a more public dominated background and of course obviously he's most known for being the ceo president of, of jago caravans which is all about engaging people to get out on the road and see the world Exactly, and then Jerry knows how's, how it works, and when he has something I say it works, it's not in a cynical way, it's just that Jerry has a, he, he has a, he has an understanding of what's required. Anybody who, anybody who's met Jerry knows, yeah, he's a guy, Jerry Ryan is obviously a very busy person, big high power business person, but he does have a human attachment to people's, um, um, I would actually even say I know I know firsthand certain certain people who he's actually helped very privately, which hasn't been publicised. But he's also had a bigger vision to just trying to support associations, community sports. And yes, he does. He does. Well, I've, I've got an interview for next week anyway, which I did with Jerry uh, just a couple of days ago. Just oh, fantastic! About greenage and where how they're tracking and his vision for where they will track. Uh, and it's, a, it's like an open-ended question. Rupert, always a pleasure. With Rupert Guinness and Aaron Esley, we are again live at the Lord Dudley. They're calling us, aren't they? Our song's calling us soon, isn't it? It is, it is. I'm, I'm worried about what it is, though. 